are entering a new age, an age demanding greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. In episode one of a three-part conversation with Jesse Perlman, Agilist and customer success expert at CA Technologies, formerly Rally Software, we discuss postmortems in the Marines and retrospectives in agile organizations, the false security of training environments, Rally's vision and creating realities, agile addictions, the dichotomy of corporate and agile terminology, the democratization of corporate entities, the granting of authority, the pain needed to change, the need to go big, and the value of agile coaches. So a little bit about my background. I actually started in the Marine Corps, um, 15 years in the Marine Corps. And the military does one thing very well. It analyzes its failures so that it doesn't make the same mistakes on the battlefield. So that was the start of my uh, introduction to agility, was the constant review of the exercises or the trainings or what we've been through in the Marine Corps to find where it didn't work and where it could be improved. Interesting. Right. You wouldn't expect it to come from the military. What? Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily, but that that's interesting. So it was these were debriefings? Is that what, what were they called? At the end of every uh, training evolution or at the end of every mission, they did, quite frankly, they called them postmortems. Okay. Or after action reports. And they would sit down and they would they would just completely go through. What was the purpose? What was the goal? Did we accomplish those things? Where didn't we accomplish it? Where could we have done it better? Was this a matter of supply and logistics? Did we not have the people on the field in time? Was this a matter of just poor training? So it was really quite a, a, a deep dive into what the intent was supposed to be in a training cycle and what we actually got out of it and how we can improve that. So the military has been doing this for thousands of years, <laughs> refining their processes. Right. And how, when, after, after a mission and you went through that mm-hmm. a postmortem, mm-hmm. how often were those lessons reintegrated into the next deployment? Or did a lot of them just kind of like, oh, we forgot? <laughs> If, because it was training and it wasn't real life and it wasn't really war, my job in the Marine Corps was a bulk fuelman. I pumped gas, right? So our training evolutions, we moved water. So what did we ever learn from it wasn't really applicable to the practice that we needed when dealing with live fuel. Very different. So while we went through the evolution of learning from what we did, we learned how better to train, not actually do our job. <laughs> so... While we were going through these evolutions, because we were evolving and learning on a training a practice, all we did was make our training better and better, but we removed it further and further from the reality of what our application was in war because we couldn't work with real fuel in peacetime. 
And how did you how did you or your team come to that realization that you were getting further and further away from it took the first war. <laughs> That's what it really takes. It takes the reality meeting that theory and the applications don't jive. So we went to Desert Storm. And it was in there that we started to understand that what our training taught us was good from a, from a certain perspective. right? It gave us boundaries or guidelines and behaviors but it didn't give us the refined element we needed in actually applying what we had to know to the, moving the fuel differently. So what we had then was this sudden break from theory to reality, and we had to iterate very quickly now on, in a real-world environment on what did we learn and where did it really fail us and start learning the new applications. Now, my, my job was made all the better. One, I was never prepared for war. Two, nobody ever really told me that this training was really just to make the training better. And three, I was saddled with a, a, a large number of reservists who'd not really been through any of the proper training for our job. So I had to figure all this out and educate others on it on the fly. That's not fun. So given what you learned from mm -hmm. this, what would your recommendations be to the next group of people coming into an environment like this or faced with this environment so that they don't face this the second time. Right. So you always want to come back to as transparent as you can be in your communication. The, the full amount of information you give someone tells them everything they need to know about the environment they're about to step into. So if I'm looking at this, I want to sit down and say, as we train, we need to remember that this training isn't necessarily applicable to the product itself. So how do we get the familiarity with the product? What can we do in a small scale that's within the EPA, right? The Environmental Protection Agency really governed what we could do with live fuel or not. So it's really a matter of being transparent and echoing back to say, while you do these trainings, these trainings are there to get you certain habituated behaviors, but you're going to have to remain flexible in mind to understand that what you're doing is not the real-world application because it's minus the fuel. Fuel is not water. It behaves completely different than water. The way you stop a leak, the way it behaves in a leak, all of it is completely different. So you have to say, these, these things that you're doing are baseline, and you're going to learn the reality of it when you get into practical application. So you have to be, stay mentally prepared for this dichotomy of behaviors. You have to stay agile in your mindset. Right, but wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to occasionally, I know it's expensive mm -hmm. and it can be dangerous, mm -hmm. but every so often recreating the, the reality a as real much world as environment. a real-world environment as much as possible so that you are better prepared yes. when, when the real situation yeah, arrives. Yeah, absolutely. All training should be as close to reality as possible. You know, uh, they send Marines out to the rifle range with real, real rounds so that we can see the impact against the weapon. The problem with dealing with something like fuel, as you said, becomes an environmental issue and a cost issue. And suddenly the budget that the military has, which is by lowest bidder, and I have to stop the hand-waving stuff when we get into the real part, <laughs> but by, by design it's lowest bidder, 
So they don't have a, a lot of budget to play with in whatever they're doing. So they have to sit there and say, where are we going to spend the money in the real-world application for training? Well, we're going to spend it in the bullet shooters. <laughs> we're going to spend it on the guys who are going to do the work to kill the enemy. And we'll risk our supply side a little bit because we know we have excess to feed into the system. So we have, uh, we have slop built in. We understand there's going to be some makeup in here, but that's okay so long as the majority of what we need is being provided. Now, when you say makeup, what, why, what are you speaking of? You, you're saying there's, there's, there's training situation, right. there's reality, and right. we know that training is only going to give us a baseline right. and that there's going to be a, a rapid right. learning curve when you get into the right. real uh, and situation. And so they say that's, a, that's an acceptable amount of waste in the system. Because they don't have the finances or the economy to budget it otherwise. So we, we simply say there's spoilage. It's just like any inventory system. You say there's a certain percentage that's going to die on the vine, and we discount that. That's just the nature of the beast. So in the military, they say, well, there's a certain percentage of things that just don't work out the, the same way. We're going to get a loss in here, but it's an acceptable loss based on the budget that we've made for war. Business yeah. is business, right? Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> So, what? Why did you choose to join the mili- the Marines? There were three things I knew when I when I growing up. The first was that I was going to grow up to be six foot six, which I did. Uh, no, there was only two things I knew growing up. No, no, there's three. Yeah, that's right. So the third one just hasn't proven itself out. The first one is I knew I was going to grow up to be six foot six, and I did. The other thing I knew growing up was I was going to be a Marine, and I was. Those were the only two things I ever really planned in my life. <laughs> That's it. And since then, it's all been guesswork after that. So I just simply wanted to be a Marine and was a Marine and did it for 15 years and said, now I'm done. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty single-minded. And also guessing your height. (laughs) (laughs) Were your parents very tall? Is that why? No. My mother was five foot eight. My father was even shorter than her. My oldest brother is six foot. And it was... I don't. I was big. I, my my neighbors, when I was six years old, we moved up to Maine. My neighbors would swing by and, and apologize or say say nice things to my mom. We're so sorry about your son. And she'd be like, "Well, what what?" And they're like, "He's slow, isn't he?" And she's like, "No, he's six years old." They thought I was like thirteen or fourteen, and I'm sitting out in dirt, right, playing. <laughs> so I was just big from birth, and I I just picked six foot six. Interesting. Well, I, the funny thing is, I'm I'm the older oldest, and mm-hmm. my younger brother is six four and a half so you could tell that i think when we were 12 or 13 there mm-hmm. are pictures we were on the swim team together and we're mm-hmm. standing head to head <laughs> except his ankles were probably twice my <laughs> circumference they're like that tree is gonna grow a yeah. lot taller than this tree well in my family the oldest is the shortest and the youngest is the tallest and it works that way and i've got three brothers so six foot six foot one six foot two six foot six wow yeah and it took me going through boot camp to finally get my revenge on my brothers and understand that oh, I am bigger than they are. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of look down at them. Right? Yeah. Don't get any ideas. Exactly. Well, they got ideas and I had to prove to them that they shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> so 
you had also mentioned during that, uh, mm-hmm. as I attended, uh, mm-hmm. was it your, your second event? That was the there? second event. We're on a, a slightly delayed cadence due to some events that occurred. Elizabeth was getting married, but we're on an every other month cadence now. So, Okay. Okay. And during that, that meeting, you mentioned that when you were working at Rally, mm-hmm. and I guess the team there was starting to go agile, agile mm-hmm. You were a little perplexed. You you were you were not one of the early adopters to so, what they were doing. Is that, <laughs> did I catch that correctly? Kind of. Um, so rally by the time I got hired on had been in existence for about eight years, and it was founded by Ryan Martins and Tim Miller. And Ryan Martins had a very clear vision about what technology could do for this world. And rally's first name was called uh, F4 Tech which was a factor of four technology. In other words, our technology would improve your capabilities by a factor of four, regardless of what they are. The long-term goal being that as you got more proficient, you were freeing up more time to do social good, becoming a social engineer and using your wherewithal within your company to help advance a social agenda, make the world a better place. That's really what Ryan Martins was after. So what, what kind of values underpinned such a, well, such see, a vision? That's, the, that's the where Tim Miller came in. Tim Miller had a different vision. His vision was about people. Now, they both believed in Agile. And Tim Miller said, all right, we have this vision, and we know that Agile is how we want to get there. Who are the people that we want? Well, the first thing that he understood was get the right people in the room, and you can teach them whatever you need. But you have to have like-minded people. Do the people believe or follow the vision as stated? Do they believe and follow the methodologies as stated? Yes and yes. Great. Right employee. Now we start doing these things. So the core values were make and meet your commitments. Um, Respect uh, each other and time boxes. Uh, Create your own reality. Work-life balance. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the create-your-own-reality... <laughs> yeah, you saw, you saw yeah, my, uh, my saw facial that. expression. That's not one you hear a lot, right? Well, it's a great... It sounds great, but that requires a, some elaboration. It does. So Tim Miller built in this really beautiful creative loophole with this core value of create-your-own-reality. He knew he had a young company... And he knew he needed the right people to build it. So if he could bring the right people in and then teach them what they needed to know about the agile processes or whatever it was that was lacking, he would then trust them to look around in his landscape of this new company and say, hey, you know what we could probably also be doing? And somebody would say, oh, what? We could be doing X, Y, or Z. And, well... That sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. And that's how we would create realities at Rally. So somebody would say there's a thing that's lacking in the company that we need, maybe a customer success organization. And so they find an executive stakeholder and they lay the case out. They don't need money proof. It's simply, we need this. It's a compelling argument. It fits within our vision. Okay, let's do it. This kind of fits into... Self-management and servant leadership at some level? It does. What does it do? Well, when you say create your own reality, you're educating your employee to look around. 
to see where they can apply what they hold personal as a value to the company to help it succeed. A passion, an interest, an enthusiasm. I teach almost every new hire at my company because I'm impassioned about it. So I put myself in volunteer positions to do that. I created that right reality for myself. They knew I could speak well to the values of the platform, to the values of the process, and educate our new hires in a way that they could start having real conversations with a customer, a valuable conversation with a customer, sooner. So, of course, they let me do it. Why wouldn't they? Had they frustrated me, they would have denied me an opportunity to express who I was and add my value to the company. Well, when you do that, what do you do? You lose an employee. They're going to take their great idea somewhere else. So why not allow people to create their own realities? Now, the interesting thing about this is that people get addicted to it. We just recently had a deep dive. Um, and this deep dive event was for our account management teams to sit around and talk about what's the, what are we trying to, what are we, what is our focus for this year for sales? How are we going to sell this product? And what tools and methodologies are we going to use for it? Now, I have to, I, I do this a lot. I get so caught up in what I'm talking about, I forget where we started from sometimes. So, well, what was I talking about? That's a good question. Oh, create we were reality. talking create, create your own reality. <laughs> All right, You're so using in the deep this dives, as an example, right, I guess. So in the deep dives, one of the things that they asked for is, we, we, do these, uh, we do these visioning exercises. We call them like nirvana. What's your nirvana? What's your perfect world? If you were to have a perfect world in account management, what would it look like? So we had these, uh, a couple of younger employees who are in our pre-sales organization. It's called Digital Pre-Sales. It's like an inside pre-sales. And they stood up and they announced that their nirvana was to be able to support our account sales teams when their technical sales person wasn't available for a presentation, a demonstration, or a conversation. Now, these were new hires, not yet fully experienced in anything agile, let alone our platform that we sell. So they stood up and they said this. And you could watch everybody in the room turn, focus, and go, fantastic. The reality started to be created in that moment. If you step forward and state that you have a potential to do something, people will start lining up to you to say, how can I help you do this thing? Because I see the benefit for it in me. I can see the benefit for it in you. Let's get it going. So they stood up and said this thing, and everybody turned to them. And I watched four different people approach these two people after they said this and said, that's fantastic. How do I help you do this? I was one of them. I said, how can I educate you so that you understand what you're doing and give you the information so that you can do it well? But that's creating a reality. Wow. That's, that sounds like a great environment. It is. It's addictive. So when I started it, working... It, does here, that imply a negative... Is there a negative aspect? No, there's no you're... real negative aspect to this. You see, this is the cool thing. I'm going to get into what you asked Because addi addiction has sort of a negative connotation. You like to breathe, right? Your body is addicted to it. It does it automatically all the time. It's an addiction. We need it well, to Well, we live. can call it natural, right? It's natural. So all I say by addictive is that it is something that, that gives us pleasure, and we want to repeat pleasure. So positive feedback it's cycle. It's a positive feedback cycle. Thank you. So 
let's go back to what I was talking about when I joined Rally. They'd been eight years in this culture that they had created. They're highly agile. And I show up from a corporate slash military background. Okay. <laughs> Oil and water, right? I didn't really have an understanding. I joined Rally because I knew, my, well, my best friend went to work there. And she had been pestering me for three years to follow her. So I finally did. And when I got there, I was pretty excited about a lot of things. I was excited about the people. I was excited about their attitudes. But the whole Agile thing, I didn't get. Because they told me, well, first of all, we have a horizontal leadership. And I was like, well, that's a lie. I come from the military. You need at least one person to tell you what to do. But that's not true. So then there was, sitting in my Agile 101 training, I had somebody telling me what the role of a scrum master was. And they were talking about how they remove blocks and they facilitate the team's advancement and they make sure that the priorities of the business are met without sacrificing the ability of the team and all of this wonderful stuff. And I said, oh, you mean a good manager? To which my friend, my now friend, went, we don't call them that here. <laughs> we call them servant leaders. All right. If there's a negative to Agile, it's that. It's that zealot kind of response that will put somebody on the outside, which it did to me. So it took maybe a little bit longer for me to really understand what was going on. I can, I can totally relate to that. I mean, as a, a good manager should be a – I mean, my understanding growing up was that's what a good manager was. And the interesting thing is I think like 20, 20 years ago, there were a lot more – Yes solid good man before there was any agile right there were project managers yeah. that were good good sure. servant leadership style managers yeah and somehow business kills leaders when a business has a desire to get as much value out of its employees as it can it kills leaders because all it cares about is an outcome it doesn't value anything inside that helps produce the outcome. That's feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to the choir here. <laughs> right? Yeah. So as we started getting more and more hooked into money, greed is good, Gordon Gecko, thank you, 80s, right? We started watching the values that the business used to invest in the employees – 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, go away. Money, 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 bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. And so anybody who is a good leader who is sitting there trying to protect that team from being overburdened got burnt out or pushed out because they were an obstacle to the business getting as much Squeeze as they could. Squeeze as much as you can out of right. your resources. Now, Agile is the natural response to all this because it's the voice of the people coming back and saying, screw you, man, we're tired of you with your, with your foot on my throat. It really kind of is. Now, Rally, though, is a business. Rally is a business. Or now, now CA. CA Technologies, Technologies owns, uh, yeah. purchased us. Um, and when they purchased us, they purchased us. <laughs> and, and if there are any CA Technologies people listening to this, classic CA, you bought us to be infected. You've told us so. You bought us to get agile, and we're starting to see it truly transform CA from the inside because they're starting to understand the real values of it. This is the democratization of a corporate entity. What I think about agile is that 
from a business perspective, its goal really is to help raise a responsible corporate entity. Rally gave back 1% annually, 1% of its time, 1% of its money. And it encouraged that in its employees. And we had annual volunteer days. And then every onboarding that we did, we would put our people through a volunteer session so they could feel good about it. This is a responsible corporate entity. They think about their impact beyond their revenue. They think about the employees that help them become successful. They think about the market that gives them the money. They think about the customer that they're trying to serve. They think about all the values and they maximize them. Whereas a non-agile waterfall entity only looks at one value. What is the dollar we're receiving in the end? And flatlines anything that is a resistance to what they feel is the most efficient means of making that dollar. So the rally portion of CA Technologies, Mm -hmm. this is a flat organization? Had been a flat organization, still is to some extent a flat organization in that we understand who our, our general manager is. That's Angela Tucci now. And we understand who our VPs are. And we understand all those things. But the reality is, is if I have a concept that can help facilitate a sell, a sale, uh, help facilitate a better understanding with my development organization as to the customer needs, and I feel I that it's that important. I feel that I can go to Angela Tucci and sit down and say, hey, listen, I've got this thing. And she will say, I'm going to listen to you. And then she'll bring in other people to find out whether that was valuable or not. And if what I was thinking was the right thing. And I will not be held uh, accountable if it wasn't valuable. I will simply be told, oh, that was a great idea, but there really isn't, it isn't viable for us at this time. It wasn't a waste of her time. How could it be a waste of her time? Any idea is is adding weight to other ideas until we get critical mass for the new concept. No idea springs whole from one mind. It was created by layers of other concepts until this one person had a new way of looking at these other concepts and putting them together in one new way. That's really what ideation is. It's a bunch of people sitting in a room spitballing until they all go, that's it. But it was built out of all these little pieces. So authority in the organization mm-hmm. is distributed or redistributed? How, how is there's, – there's in a typical organization, mm-hmm. from my understanding, the hierarchy or the pyramid structure, as you go farther mm-hmm. up in the organization, there's greater and greater authority. Yes. How is the authority map in – Rally, is that more distributed? So it was a far more distributed or dispersed authority kind of system. Um, think about it this way. If you are charged personally with the success of the organization, the business, its vision, don't you have all the authority you need to talk to the person that you think needs to hear what you have to say? Well, that's, I mean, that that's what agile is. That's what, so. Okay, okay. <laughs> I have all the authority in the world 
to do the things that I know that advance the company's strategy, the value, the end result. Because I've been through a rigorous hiring process so that I know I fit within this environment and everybody else that hired me knows I fit in this environment. There's a trust that was built through that hiring process so that an automatic authority is granted to you because you passed muster and got hired in. You're the right person. We trust you. Here's some authority. Here's some responsibility. Go do good works. Create your own reality. Have an excellent work-life balance. If I see you here after 5 o'clock and I know you started at 9, I'm going to yell at you, man. Seriously, get out of here. (laughs) You're raising responsible individuals. That's what you're doing. And you're empowering that responsible individual. You're treating them like an adult. And guess what? You treat an adult like an adult. They behave like an adult. And they do the right thing nine times out of ten because you educated them and given them the information, the transparency into everything they need to know to make the right decisions, to use the authority that they've been given. You're raising responsible individuals. Therefore, you're raising a responsible corporation. It's all one thing, man. No, I I agree. And what what baffles me is how we ever got off. Well, maybe we we were never on course. um, Mm. But individuals such as Rally and and other organizations that are doing this are are leading the way. Why are there so few of them? Pain. (laughs) It's all about pain. We have a lot of startups. We have a lot of people with a lot of visions. But it's all about pain. Fear or pain? Pain. We won't change unless the pain is sufficient. So if I can find my way to the easiest model, that's the least amount of pain to get the maximum amount of results, or so I think. So why Maybe they're experiencing a lot of pain right now. Right. But it's about... Okay. So I had this conversation with my daughter, actually. This is interesting. Uh, Because all change is is based on pain. Uh, And I was trying to get her to understand this agile concept that you have to lower your pain threshold. Really, really low. So check it out. I've lost two teeth out of my mouth. And I lost them because I didn't pay attention to a toothache. I would get a toothache and I was like, it was there for a day and gone. Eh, Nah, no pain. And then... It would come back randomly every once in a while. And then it got to be every other day. But I got used to the pain. It was no big deal. And then it got to be every day. And ah, it was no big deal because it wasn't a lot of pain. And then it got to be where it was almost painful to eat. But still not enough for me to actually go see the dentist because, you know, he's going to tell me something's wrong. And I don't want to face that. Until I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning with excruciating pain where the abscess underneath my tooth forced itself out of my gum line. That ain't fun. So now, when I get a toothache, I see the dentist that day. Because I've learned that if my pain threshold is really, really low, then I have far less pain in my life to deal with later on. So businesses don't understand this concept quite so well because what they're hooked to is the dollar. And their mentality is, so long as I'm making this amount of money, and I know I can continue to make this amount of money, and it's enough, it's just enough, really. It's kind of sort of enough. I'm fine. Could it also be a lack of vision? A lack of... I, could, that, that they've seen 
uh, my parents, my grandparents, mm-hmm. my friends, and my family, they all, they all see the world this way. They all think there's only one option. It's the old, it's, there's right. only one option, essentially. Right. Uh, you don't buy that. No, I'm having difficulties with that. Because the reality is, is success you can never argue with. And any team or any business that's truly following agile behaviors, they're successful. They're predictable. They can, they can plan properly. They can deliver to the market accurately. And they can pivot when the market changes or if they have a problem in their development organization. It's called success. And we see these larger corporations being eaten up by these smaller disruptors that are chewing away niches out of this bigger market because they're too slow to respond. Right? So they're seeing success in their competitors. And they don't understand that that success could be theirs if they just change their methodologies. All they recognize is that they're, they're still, we're, we're fine, we're making enough money, it's just a bunch of gnats right now. It doesn't change until the competitors eat them until they've lost enough of their market that they can't even maintain their lights. When they can't even maintain their platform, that's when the pain happens. That's when it's sufficient that they know they really need to change something to get the revenue back. But by then, it's usually a little too late because they're in the death throes. It's really hard to resuscitate something that's dying because their struggles are the last gasp of air that they're getting is all they know for the air that they can get. And you're asking them to hold their breath for maybe three breaths worth while you teach them a new way of breathing. That's pretty scary. That's a little too little too late. Right. And they're already drowning. But is that a real... I mean, that's a, that's a very compelling narrative that you weave there. Mm-hmm. But is it accurate i mean not always i mean everything's uh, you know i i give you illustrations of black and whites sometimes to to really make the point stand yeah everything's a shade of gray we have customers that i know are losing business regularly and repeatedly because they are unwilling to fully commit to their agile journey and it's usually at the executive layer because the executive layer are the ones that are looking at what little money they're making and their mentality is a, a lack mentality it's really hard to change a lack mentality. What, a fear of losing something? Or what is a lack mentality? A lack mentality states there isn't enough of any one thing, and so what little you're getting, you, you want to keep. So like a zero, the, the belief that things are a zero-sum game? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That there can't be a win-win. Right. I can't win. My employees can't win at the right. same time. My competitors can't win at the same right. time. Right. It, I've got to dominate this, and everybody else right. has to lose. So what little money or what little revenue I'm generating is at least a revenue stream I can count on at this time to continue to survive and execute against my mission or my competitors. What little I have, I will not risk losing for even a little bit of time in order to get more. That's what Agile asks. Give up what you have now to get more really soon, but you're going to have to struggle a little bit to get that. There's a learning curve. So you're giving up... You, you, you have to give up what little you have to get more. 
You don't have to give up everything, do you? <laughs> no, you don't, but that's how they see it. Because they don't understand. Look, until you can give them the success, they'd never get it. And the problem with most organizations is they undercommit. They go small when they need to go big. When a doctor tells you that you have a systemic problem, you don't just treat the symptoms. You treat the whole problem. So businesses need to do whole transformations, but that's difficult. So they do small. And the reality is, is they're going to create one or two or three teams, agile teams. But they're not going to put all the agile practices on the other side of the team to make the team successful. So the team was never going to get a, to a predictable state. And if the team can never get to a predictable state, the business never has success, therefore Agile is a failure, why did we even waste this money? So they proved to themselves why they shouldn't have never started in the first place by undercommitting. Now, let's go back to a principle from, from the military. It's much, sure. it's much faster to, much easier to change direction in a fighter mm-hmm. aircraft than it is in an aircraft carrier. Yes. What do you think about the idea Let's, let's pretend that sure. you're running a very large organization sure. in, a very, in a traditional uh, manner. Sure. Create a... Take some aspect of your business, mm-hmm. the cutting-edge aspect of your business, mm-hmm. a business unit, mm-hmm. and make it a startup. Mm-hmm. In that startup, mm-hmm. hire Agilists to help you mm-hmm. totally reorganize the, mm-hmm. the operation. Mm-hmm. Go totally agile. Mm-hmm. Hire the most mm-hmm. forward-thinking people you can think of. Now take all of then slowly as this is building up, rotate your management team and your leaders within your organization to work there mm-hmm. each for six months mm-hmm. so that they catch this infection. So what do you think about that idea as opposed well, to just going whole hog within the... In the within so that, the is, that is the scaled approach that most customers will take. See, agilists will say, do it all at once, right? That's, that's the perfect world. Well, we're also realists. So we look at it and we say, all right, just like you outlined, let's take that one value stream that you're focusing on the most. Let's understand what you're trying to do strategically in this year. And now let's treat this as if it were agile. So we'll take teams and we'll transform them. Or you can hire and bring people in. What we do is we teach everyone that they should have what's called a center of excellence or a council of practice or a group that is there to do exactly what you were talking about. They hold and train the body of practice to the employees so that you never lose your agile practice and methodologies. These are your coaches tied into your scrum masters. That's the nervous system. And I've seen customer after customer attempt to transformation without coaches on board, and they always fail. You need the coach. You need agile coaches to be the nervous system in the organization. But it, what, how to, I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing no, 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 with that. I don't think but what I'm, sa- what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm essentially saying, though, right. ha- having them operate, is it, isn't it easier to find, to feel success in a smaller organization than it is with an organization with 5,000, 10,000 people. It is. It is. Um, and that's why you, you have people who will do that. Yes. CA is going about it 
Big Bang. They bought us, they ate us, and now they are, they are transforming everyone. They've moved everyone over to the platform so that they can all use the platform so that they can all follow the agile processes that the platform was designed to support. And it is all transforming at once. It is happening across the board. We have people who are engaged helping educate their development organizations on exactly how it works. And we are doing a staggered rollout, but it is happening across the whole organization in time. But you always want to start with a slice because you have to get that imprint in place. Let's get the pattern in place first, and then we can resonate off of this one pattern, this one area where we have the success, out to the other branches of the organization as they get successful. So, yes, that is exactly how you want to do it. That's what we teach and coach. And, and, that, and the coaches scale. are the key thing. The coaches are the key thing. Originally, in the first slice, they so have to keep going up and down as the nervous system. They ensure that the integrity of what you're doing stay, or the fidelity of what you're doing is pure. That's what the coaches do. They stay with the, the center of excellence, as it were, and the body of practitioners to ensure that the communication between the center of excellence, where they understand the core body of practice to be, and they're constantly learning from where success is coming from out of the other organizations. But the coaches are there to say, we need to apply this, this learning over to this organization because it's starting to fail. Or we need to involve these executives because they're not involved properly the right way in the planning session to ensure that the, the strategic vision has been outlined right. The coach is there to keep it all in, in shape, keep the health in check, ensure there's no cancers, no illness, no anything like that. So that the, the DNA or the genetic imprint as we create new cells is as pure as it can be in replication. Assuming, I mean, of course... The, the cell, the DNA itself, you may want that to evolve. You know, just because you've, you've come up with what are supposedly great values to start out with, you also have to put those it's under a the constant microscope. evolution. That's why the coach is there bringing in the new and making sure that the new is being exported out where it's needed as well. So the coach is there to pay attention to, oh, this is flavors that we need. This is flavors that need to be brought out. And as a company or a team or whatever you, your focus is on this evolves – these practices will evolve. This is, the, this is the key piece of agility, right? If you're not reviewing and learning from what your mistakes were, then you're not really agile. This completes episode one of a three-part conversation with Jesse Perlman. been listening to Agile and Beyond. Visit agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, keep evolving.